Hi, and welcome to this uh, guest-hosted issue of Religion Unplugged. My name is Ryan Anderson. I'm the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center uh, here in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of, uh, I guess most recently, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, a book that has uh, some relevance for today's discussion. Uh, last week, I uh, hosted a discussion with my EPPC colleague, Mary Hassan, on uh, some of the legal and um, political and religious liberty implications of the Equality Act. Uh, today, I'm joined by Professor Margaret McCarthy of the John Paul II uh, Institute, also here in Washington, D.C., uh, to talk about some of the deeper anthropological and metaphysical implications of the Equality Act and, and how these competing uh, worldviews, these competing anthropologies uh, come to bear on some of those um, uh, deeper religious questions. Um, so first, uh, Professor McCarthy, thank you uh, for joining me. Thank you for making time for this. Um, You're welcome. Tell our, our, um, you know, our audience who might not be familiar with the JP2 Institute, just a little bit about you know, your institution and what you teach there, um, kind of what the guiding spirit uh, and vision of the JP2 Institute is. Well, one of the first actions that John Paul II was to take, had he not been shot, was to found the John Paul II Institute for Studies in Marriage and the Family. He, as a priest in Poland, as a bishop, yeah, as a, as a pastor in Poland, had, had undertaken many initiatives for the family, promoting the family. Um, but what is perhaps often missed is that he understood the, the, the various uh, cultural um, efforts to undermine the family um, were themselves coming from sort of deeper conceptions about nature, freedom, the person, the relation between love and generation. And so um, when he set up his institute in Rome, it was a really full-blown theological and philosophical institution. It was I went there myself, and it was a fascinating place, a, a real mix of, of, of thinkers coming from, you know, the Nouvelle Theologie. I'm referring to the movement um, in the 30s in France. It had its Italian version, uh, the Scuola di Venegono. Um, you know, there were you know, Cornelio Fabro came by, uh, the, 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 the Poles came by, Seifert came by, lots of interesting people who were, who were, were, were thinking out very big questions about the relation between God and, and, and creation. And so it's, it's a little odd because the, the JP2 Institute is an, an interesting, it's an institute with a topic, you know, marriage and the family. And yet, we get into, you know, we run the gamut of all the disciplines, including philosophical and metaphysics, Trinitarian theology, Christology, mm -hmm. creation, philosophy, and theology of nature, um, freedom. I myself did a dissertation on predestination there. So um, and, and that had to do with creation and all that. So um, the, the scope was pretty large. So he saw what was going on with the family to be at the tip of an iceberg, at the bottom of which were sort of mega questions about, you know, the nature of being itself. Right. And so let's get to those meta questions um, because, you know, for the Equality Act, um, you know, a lot of people know, you know, what will this mean for bathrooms or locker rooms or sports teams or um, Catholic adoption agencies, you know, kind of those bottom line practicalities. Um, right. But, and last week we covered a lot of that with um, Mary Hassan. Uh, today, I kind of want to, 
think through with you, what are some of those deeper, you know, not just the tip of the iceberg, but kind of the foundation of the iceberg? Where does the Equality Act go wrong with its anthropology, uh, with its vision of reality, its vision of the human person? So I would say that it, 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 would, it would amount to codifying in law the redefinition of fundamental realities of human nature, man, woman, mother, father, child, realities which on which the whole entire human species depends. So it's a big deal. <laughs> and how so? How so? I mean, um, to say your identity, if, if I say my identity is a male identity, I am saying I am what I decide or feel, perhaps even deeply feel, or assert I am. And today, one thing, tomorrow, another thing. Moreover, everybody else is also to... Um, acknowledge this. In a certain sense, though there's a tiny minority of the population that you know identifies as transgender, we are all sort of redefined. So I now have been redefined as cisgender. So I I have an identity that's congruous with my body as opposed to incongruous, but already I'm being defined according to transgender categories. That is to say, my identity, our identities are all arbitrarily and accidentally related to our bodies. Mm. Our bodies being mere raw matter and our identities being this kind of this kind of sort of spiritual thing inside of us. Gilbert Ryle spoke about the Cartesian dualism as the ghost in the machine. We're now seeing that applied to sexual difference. Our identities are the ghost and our bodies are this just this machine of, uh, of raw matter. So secondly, um, the Equality Act would codify in law, um, it would, it would, that is, it would compel a new form of knowing. It would burden everyone with this new form of knowing. It would require us all to live for all public and practical purposes, in spite of all the visible evidence to the contrary as if our pre-ideological experience of reality were officially false. And by contrast, what is patently false, officially true. It would rob everyone of their ordinary perceptions, their, their judgments, and therefore also a common grasp on reality, which is what allows us to communicate with each other easily what we see, to use the same language. Uh, it would, as Anthony Esselin says so nicely, inject a carcinogen into the healthy cells of the mind. Mm-hmm. It would furthermore compel a new form of speech. And I can't help but think of 1984's Newspeak. Um, we would be, our speech would be under a linguistic guard requiring us to say and perhaps even think that what we see is not what we see, but something else. And finally, it would, of course, endanger all the vulnerable souls. We are vulnerable souls as human beings. It, it, as a human being, it's a work to grow up. Mm-hmm. It's a risky job to raise children, um, especially there are moments of weakness, especially at puberty. And now those vulnerable souls, instead of being met with wise therapists, doctors, and parents, are now met with a whole psychological medical complex with a scalpel in hand ready to do harm. So let me just, I mean, just reiterate, it's very, it's very important to see this is not just about rights. 
the rights of you know the individual here or there to free self-expression. If a 10-year-old child is required by his school to affirm in word and in deed that a classmate whom he has always known as a boy is now a girl, this doesn't simply affirm the second classmate's right to self-expression, so-called. It calls into question the meaning of boy and girl, not just for that classmate, but for the first child himself, and in relation to everyone else in his life, his mother, father, sister, brother, and all of his relations. And that, in a way, I mean, gender identity is an ideological construct, and the sort of the point of ideological constructs is, in fact, to suppress or to hide uh, from our eyes, you know, the reality bef before us, and therefore to shape everyone's understanding of reality. So that, in a sense, that's the point. <laughs> that is the point of a construct, an yeah. ideological construct. So, so if I if I kept track of um, your answer there, it, it sounds like four major major points is that you know the Equality Act is going to redefine reality. Um, it's then going to change how we think about reality. It's going to change how we speak about reality. And then it's going to change kind of the social ecology in which um, vulnerable people, all of us being vulnerable, but particularly yeah. children, the social ecology in which they navigate kind of that progression from, you know, boy to man to, you know, future husband and father, yeah. girl, yes. future yes. wife and mother. Um, and so it's not just about, you know, the one student with gender dysphoria who wants to identify as right. something like that. It's actually going to change the culture for everybody. For everybody. Absolutely. Being in thinking, in speaking, and then simply in raising the next gender. I mean, I think that's such a huge. Thank you. You put it so well. That's right. Um, so let me ask you this. What's the alternative? Right. So, so um, help people understand, think, appreciate uh, what the kind of like historic theological and philosophical account of, you know, who we are as male and female. Um, if, if it's not the ghost of the machine account, what's the alternative? You know, what was JP2's anthropology? What, what, what's the anthropology um, that our law should be embodying? Well, that, I mean, there's a profound relation between my eye and my body. Um, you know, it's not just that my body is female. I am a, I am a female. I am a woman, not just my body. You know, I am in some sense, my body. If I throw my body out the window, I go out with it. Right. Just to be really concrete. Then there's that, that the un basic unity I have with myself, but then to be sexual. Um, and, and, and perhaps this is the reason why we're so at war with sexual difference. We do have to understand why. We're so at war with this fact about ourselves. To be sexual is to be profoundly caught up in a network of relations. And the way I like to put it is in terms of the past, the present, and the future. So, I mean, we, we often forget this, but to be sexual is, is to be the kind of being that was put into existence through the sexual process. That is, I was born. To be sexual is to be the kind of being that was born. And, you know, that's something we're really at war with because to, to be born is, of course, to come into a world with a whole sort of to be an heir to something. Mm. We're an heir to a whole tradition and not just a horizontal tradition. The family, you know, the family I come from has its own sort of, you know, um, heirloom, so to speak, but also the metaphysical tradition of being itself. So um, 
And then to be uh, a boy, girl, or man, or woman is to always stand before another manner of being bodily that I am not. And to be sort of necessarily sort of facing that other matter, manner, whether I get married or not, that's irrelevant. But um, it's always sort of before me. I'm always entangled somehow with that. And then to be potentially a mother or father. I mean, think of what that means for, you know, if you have a certain conception of freedom that dominates us today, um, um, we, we tend to think of our lives in terms of dreams. You know, our future is a, is, is a future of fulfilling our dreams. We, as Americans, we talk about this all the time. It's, it's, it's a bucket list to be pursued, but a series of dreams that we pursue and put in our bucket and so on. Whereas to be a mother or father is to be subject to sort of all the unpredictability of life. And to have a child is, of course, a beautiful thing, but it also takes you in directions, you know, that were unpredictable. Then normal people like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they they recognize the difficulty of it, but it's also beautiful because um, you know um, at the highest level of animal life, we are the most entangled with each other, and the greatest thing we can possibly do, which is to to give birth to new life, we can only do by means of a co-action with an, with another human being. There are lots of things I could do by myself. But there's, you know, the most important thing I can possibly do, I cannot do by myself. I, I, I have to do with another of the opposite, not only another, but another of another kind. And by means of a co-action, that, that's very, that, that's very beautiful. <laughs> um, so, yeah, John Paul II um, described in a way what a, a philosopher could have described, actually, um, and that is that we have this profound relation with ourselves, um, you know, uh, and then this de- we're deeply embedded in, in, in relations with others. So you could say the human being has a personal name and a family name. The personal name is this sort of represents this deep uniqueness that we have. And then the family name is embeddedness. So Christianity deepens all of that because, you know, with Christianity, you have the Trinitarian God and, 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 and that, that adds a whole different level to all of this. What that adds is that that difference is actually not just a, a worldly thing and therefore belonging to bad finitude, so to speak. It actually belongs to God himself. Hmm. So, that, so the Christian can say that difference is positive all the way up to God himself. So that is really new. Whereas there's always a tendency in sort of pre-Christian sort of philosophies or religions to think of difference as kind of a fall from the one, something that has to be overcome to get over it. Why do we think that? Well, because a lot of the violence we do to us that's done to us and that we do to others happens in between these spaces mm-hmm. between parents and children, men and women, mothers and fathers and their children. So it's, it's, it's understandable that um, short of, you know, revelation, it's, it's, it, we, we should appreciate that it's, you know, why is it that there's such a universal temptation to kind of want to get out of this phenomenon, to kind of erase it somehow. Christianity, of course, brings a possibility that's, that's new, for, not only in our understanding of difference, but also the ability to tolerate it, right. the, the ability to tolerate and I do think that at this moment in time, Christianity in particular, I, I could also add Judaism to that, has a role in affirming, defending, upholding, um, 
uh, being the last custodian of ordinary natural realities. Mm-hmm. So, in the, you know, in the early church, the church fathers would say God became man so that man can become God. I think now we could say that's all certainly true, but God became man so that man could remain man. <laughs> well, I mean, and John Paul says that in his first encyclical. I mean, not so much that man could become man, but he says that, you know, Jesus became human to reveal the fullness of humanity. To, that's right. To, not, not just the fullness of God, but the, right. to reveal man to himself. Right. So, for example, his first dialogue with the Pharisees about divorce, he doesn't say, I'm bringing you a new doctrine. I'm returning you to back to sort of the nature of marriage that was at the very from beginning. beginning. From the beginning. Is, right. is this a creative, this is, a, this is an affair of creation. This isn't some new thing. Yeah. Um, so you, it's interesting. You want to ask, yeah. I mean, what is it about being in front of Christ that makes it possible to sort of see the intelligibility and the beauty of indissolubility? Because it's not so obvious. Mm-hmm. We have to face that. The disciples themselves said it would be better not to be married. Right, right. <laughs> we have to appreciate <laughs> that, that these relations are, they're dramatic. Mm-hmm. And so let me, um, just for our listeners, uh, just repeat something that you had said there uh, before I, I want to ask you something that you just finished up with. But, I mean, you had described the alternative metaphysic, the alter- alternative anthropology is that, you know, we are bodily beings, right? We're not ghosts and machines, um, we are bodily. We're, we're incarnational. We're embodied. It, it, there's, there's not a, there is and there isn't a duality, right? There, there's both form right. and matter, but you That's never right. matterless form or formless matter. That's right. When it comes to people like us, right? I mean, there is That's right. matter in some, you know, esoteric metaphysical sense, but we are right. always that dynamic. Uh, informed matter, informed matter. Yeah. And, and then you had um, suggested in that, like the way this comes about is that, you know, we are the creatures of a sexual act right so so our um, reminds us that we are the creatures of a sexual act we are then sexually embodied male or female which is then kind of what creates the potentiality for us to then unite as one flesh in an act that is generative right i mean so so it seems like um you know that's a huge part of our our reality right that i came from my mom and dad I'm now, you know, a brother, but I could have been a sister, right? I'm one or the other. And being a son is what equipped me to now be a husband and a father, right? I mean, those are hugely important, um, not just kind of um, identities or social roles, but realities, right? I mean, these these, these are, um, you know, identities I have only because they are realities that that I embody, and that the Equality Act would suggest for all of us that these are just purely, you know, freely chosen, constructed identities. Yes. Is, is that a fair kind of uh, summary of, of how you're thinking about this? I don't want to yes. put words in your mouth. But no, I, 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 absolutely. And um, I mean, many people have pointed out rightly, I think that, I mean, with this new word gender, I mean, the new use of it anyway, as something alternative to sex, that it it actually, um, it's like cloning. It takes out the sort of mm. nucleus of what sex is, which is precisely the capacity or the, the preparation for and capacity to generate. Right. And um, what do you have left? You have an empty sack. You know, um, you have, you know, stereotypes. 
you know, um, sort of secondary things, not that they're unimportant, but secondary things, but um, things that essentially don't make a man, a man and a woman, a woman. Um, so you've kind of, you, you've got the worst, yeah, you've got the worst of both worlds. You've got stereotypes and, and no relation <laughs> and, and, and no potential for, for generation whatsoever. It's kind of breathtaking. And so I'm looking at the clock. And so um, let right. me give you one last question, just because it's right where you had finished up when you had mentioned, you know, the early church fathers said, you know, God became man so that man might become God. And like, you know, here we need the church just to reveal our humanity to ourselves. You know, the Remptoris uh, Hominis encyclical uh, um, yeah. from JP2. And you, and you touched on this in your Wall Street Journal op-ed, um, that the reason that we're seeing the religious liberty challenges is not because of some like esoteric Christian doctrine about infant baptism or transubstantiation. Right. But it's actually about kind of like public metaphysical truths. That's um, right. And so I wonder, you know, Mary walked us through all the legal discussions, you know, First yeah. Amendment, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right. Like, could you comment some of the religious liberty questions, you know, not from the perspective of a lawyer, but yeah, yeah, yeah. From the perspective of a philosopher and a theologian? Um, you know, why is Yeah, the- I will. Um, although I, I, I know nothing about it from the point of view of a lawyer, so so I wouldn't even try. So I'm really coming at this from the outside of, of any real knowledge about American uh, religious freedom discussions. But I wrote this because I was watching the hearing and I was really annoyed, <laughs> not by the wonderful defenders, Mary Hassan, of course, and Abigail, um, they're very articulate, but at the sort of limitations the, 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 of public discourse, clearly someone decided the only way we can defend ourselves against equality is we have to talk about women's sports. And we have to talk about religious freedom in this utterly defensive way. So that's not the fault of, of those who are speaking. But so originally I wanted to write the op-ed as a, as a kind of hit piece on religious freedom. <laughs> uh, I, I thought Durbin's final comments were fantastic. I mean, he said, um, recourse to religious freedom is nothing but a shield behind which to hide the practice of bigotry and discrimination, much like the KKK hiding behind the cross to do what? Lynchings, no less, right? So we left everyone with that lovely image. And I thought, you know, religious freedom is not long for this world. The way, the way we're talking about it. I'm not a lawyer, so I understand lawyers have to deal with their limits. I get, I get that. But it was, so it's, it's, it seems to be the problem, at least uh, for, for us, we have to understand that the, 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 the religious freedom argument tends to go in the direction of making it sound like what we hold are irrational and private beliefs. Already, that's not even true for infant baptism and the Holy Trinity, Okay. We actually don't think those are irrational and we don't think they're private. We actually think they're universal. They, they, we actually are being a little dishonest mm. when, we, when we suggest otherwise. We actually you know, have a, a mission to go into all the nations and all that. Now, naturally, there's a difference between believing in the created order and believing in the Holy Trinity. In Catholic terms, we speak about light of reason and the light of revelation. In the history of America, Part of the unique thing about America is, is all kinds of religious weirdos were left, you know, let in. And every and anyone could believe in whatever they wanted to about the Trinity or the not Trinity or infant baptism or not. In a certain sense, we decided to uh, agree to disagree. Everyone could be on his own soapbox. 
And you could say, well, that's a good thing. But the other side of that is, is we, we learn to become, to have a kind of indifference about really important questions. Okay. We could talk about that later, but what we're dealing with now are, are so-called sincerely held beliefs that are clearly manifest truths and clearly make a universal claim. We're talking about beliefs that aren't, strictly speaking, don't have to do with revelation at all, but have to do with manifest truths right before our eyes. Is the grass green in summer? Is the sky blue? Is a man a woman? And so on. Uh, meanwhile, in the public square, it is dominated by a form of quote-unquote rationality, I put quotes around that, um, that, that suggests that it is reasonable to believe that we are nothing but spirit and will, that we are not beholden to a prevenient natural order. So it is rational to believe that we are all in a dream, and it is a matter of religious belief to believe that we are not. That's Chesterton, right? So it, the tables have completely turned. So, you know, who's for reason, right? Who's for reason anymore? And who's, who's the one with the beliefs? I mean, what are, what are self-identifications and deeply, held, and, and, and deeply felt feelings, if not beliefs in the worst sense of the term, private and irrational? And yet now everyone is going to have to acknowledge what are utterly private and irrational beliefs at the worst level of belief, right? And Christianity, yeah, Christianity has this sort of interesting, I think it's very interesting. So when I began to write the op-ed, it was going to be a hit piece on religious freedom. And I thought, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> in a certain sense, it really, the, the situation we're in really is about religious freedom in the sense that, in this sense, though, that the church needs to, to see its, its particular gift right, is more for the world than ever, than ever. And it is the sort of last defender of, last bastion of the world's worldliness, the world's own worldliness. And, and Chesterton saw that, but there are other people like Fabrice Hajjaj today, this, this French philosopher is writing a lot about this. I really appreciate his writings. Hmm. Um, his book, his book on the resurrection is fantastic because he, he lists, you know, he talks about, for example, Jesus' own miracles. There was nothing sort of fantastic about his miracles. What did he do? He made the blind man see what everybody else could see. Hmm. What's so great about that? <laughs> you know, he didn't make him see invisible things. He made him see visible things. Right. And what was great about that is the blind man, not having been able to see those things before, he could appreciate them for what they were, things that other people took for granted. Mm. He, he, he helped hungry people to eat food mm. he healed a woman from a hemorrhage probably allowing her to have a child mm. think about it mm. and then after he rose you know from the dead um, a, a, a messenger came to the disciples and said why are you standing looking up into heavens mm. that's very interesting stop looking up in the heavens he is here he is here um, so, so, so much of Christianity is about, you know, from the beginning, from the creation of the world, the, the, giving the world its worldliness, to Christ's own incarnation, to the resurrection itself, is all about giving to be the world in its otherness with respect to God. Hmm. Hmm. That's a perfectly profound note to, to end on, because I, it, it strikes me that the Equality Act would, you know, almost intentionally negate that. 
Intentionally or unintentionally, absolutely. It, um, you know, um, I know you're going to talk to um, someone about Augusto del Noche, but um, there's a real relation between um, the negation of the sexual order and the um, the resistance against God, um, because uh, sex is the place where we are brought into being and where we bring others into being. And so it's 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 the place where the sort of metaphysical tradition is kind of handed on and where we have to face this fact of a prevenient natural order, both in front of us and above us, so to speak. And so I do think that the attempt to sort of eliminate the sexual difference goes very much hand in hand with the attempt to eliminate the difference between us and God. Yeah. So with that, I think we'll we'll wrap up. Thank you. And actually, I think that's a perfect note to end on that the the attempt to eliminate the sexual difference between male and female is also an attempt to eliminate um, kind of uh, our dependency on a creator, our existence as creatures, um, which implies a creator. So thank you. um, You're very welcome. Thank you for our um, audience who's joined us. And um, next week, we'll be back for the, uh, the third and the final installment of this. Thank you very much. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was guest hosted by Ryan Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and it was edited and produced by Steve Gandy. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.